G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. There are many in Israel who go along with Antiochus. They simply say, well, this is the way the world's going, so we better go along with it. Today with Jeff Vines. Hi and welcome. My name is Bill and thanks for joining me again on Today with Jeff Vines. Today we're looking at James chapter 1 verse 12, which happens to be one of Pastor Jeff's favourite passages. It says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trials. Now this message is a bit of a history lesson. It's looking at an event that happened around 200 BC. It looks at the actions of Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes, how that event is still significant in the Jewish and Christian world today, and what it shows us about persevering under trials. Let's get into it. This is Today with Jeff Bynes. I want to read a passage of Scripture to you. It's one of my favorites. One of the first sermons I preached was on this passage, James chapter 1, verse 12. And here's what it says. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, the word for persevere is a common Greek word used oftentimes in the New Testament, hupomone, and it means endurance. Over and over again in the New Testament, we are challenged to persevere and endure. And the reason is, is because there's a very good chance that there will be many who follow Jesus who will not endure, who will not persevere. There's a Greek word in the Bible that refers to uh, apostasy, or it's the attitude of leaving what was familiar to you, something that you were dedicated to and casting that aside and following a new way. The Bible says that there will be many who will follow the new way of a new world and new culture and will fall away from their commitment to Christ. That's why the Bible says the way uh, to salvation or the way to God is a narrow way and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Now, I want you to take that thought and put it over to the side and follow me here. I want, to, I want you to sit back, have a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, whatever it is, sit back, relax just for a moment. We're gonna pull that passage back in later. But I need to remind you of an event that took place somewhere between uh, 200 BC, 200 years before the birth of Christ. It's an historical event that carries great weight even today in the, both the Jewish and the Christian world. So we're somewhere around 200 BC. Israel has once again been restored. She has survived Babylonian captivity. She has survived the Assyrians, the Medo-Persian kingdom. She has 
been restored. She has repented. She is in good favor with God as a nation. She has her temple back to a degree. And I say to a degree because she is presently living under Greek rule. The Greeks have come in now. And there have been many Israelites continuing to follow the ways of Yahweh and to keep his precepts. But when the Greeks come to power, they seek to do what many nations before them had done with the Israelites. They want to galvanize the people under one flag, one culture. They take a page out of Nebuchadnezzar's book, actually, and attempt to bring all the people under one flag. Suddenly, they tell all of these cultures over which the Greeks are ruling, they tell them, we want everybody to worship the same gods. We want you to practice whatever the governing authority tells you that you can practice. We want you to forsake all your religious practices in the past and come under uniformity under Greek law. Greek religions will determine what is sacred now. We'll tell you what is sacred and what is profane. And they want everyone under, the, under Greek authority to celebrate the same holidays or the holy days, worshiping the same gods, participating in the same religious ritual celebrations. Now, in the midst of this, now stay with me. We'll hook it back in later, but very important history. In the midst of all this, a king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes rises to the forefront and he makes an even more aggressive decree because he tells the Israelites and every nation represented under his authority that they are now compelled to worship the god Zeus, the Greek god Zeus. So every nation now must give up all of its gods and its traditions, its beliefs and cultural practices and align completely with the gods of the Greeks, especially the god Zeus. Now, if you know anything about history, historically, for most nations, this is not a big deal because they are polytheistic. They worship many gods. One more God isn't that big a deal, and one God is as good as the next God. And Zeus is obviously a powerful God because he has given Greeks power. So most of them would say, okay, whatever, hail Zeus. This is the way the world is going, so we're just going to get in line and follow all the other sheep off the cliff. And so the Greeks are trying and attempting to create this one world government and people, one world religion, one world religious practices, one God, one people, well, many gods actually, but one God, Zeus, one people, one religion. For one nation, however, this galvanization is an impossibility. They just don't fit in. They don't fit the system. In fact, historically, they've never fit in and they will never fit in. This will be a problem for these tiny nation or this tiny nation, a group of people, wherever they go in their past and in the future, because they will never assimilate completely into a foreign culture because their king is the one true God and has revealed himself. And he's made it very clear that worshiping other gods, false gods is a serious offense and a futile and unfulfilling exercise. So this one group among all the peoples and all the nations under Greek rule the Hebrews, the people of God, will always be seen as the outsiders who refuse to conform. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes sees that they are different than the other nations, that they're completely dedicated to this one God, Yahweh. And they are determined not only to reject the gods of the Greeks, but to denounce all other gods, the Greek gods, including Zeus, as false and powerless. And in the mind of Antiochus Epiphanes, this will never work. And there's only one solution because these people stand in the way of human progress. And it's a final solution. They must be eradicated. Their culture is simply too deeply ingrained. 
They are far too faithful to Yahweh to ever to submit to an outside authority, an external authority. So there's only one option, genocide. Let's send a small army and annihilate them. Rid the earth of them and be done with it. Now, if you know anything about the history of Israel, this will be one of many genocides against the nation or the people of God. This in part was exactly what Hitler was trying to do. He knew that he would never completely rid the Jews of their faith and culture. No way. He could never create a regime that lasted a thousand years as long as these pesky little Jews were influencing culture, morality, and destiny. Their ultimate allegiance would never be toward Germany, never. It would always be toward Yahweh, toward God. Now let's pause here for a second and bring something else in. Revelation chapter 12 is a fascinating narrative. And in Revelation 12, chapter 17, we are basically informed of the attitude that will be primary against or toward God's people throughout the centuries. And verse 17 says, then the dragon, again, we can't go into all of this, but the dragon definitely represents Satan. There's no, uh, no discussion, no disagreement among scholars here. The dragon was enraged at the woman. The woman is the bride of Christ, the people of God, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. That's new converts, those who keep God's commands, the Jews, and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus, the Christians. So basically, Revelation 12 tells us throughout all of human history, there is a battle going on, always. There is an evil power behind all man-made thrones, all of them. There's a satanic power behind an attempted annihilation of the people of God. And if you think about the pre-modern era, think about all the examples where this prophecy is not only fulfilled, but also, since it was written around AD 70, it's describing what had happened in the past. We have the story of Esther and Haman, Haman wanted to exterminate the Jews by persecution for failure to pursue the same gods as the pagans. But God causes Esther to be the savior with a small s. She becomes the queen in the palace for such a time as this. Then you have Pharaoh and Moses. Pharaoh wanted to exterminate the the Jews or the Israelites by starvation and oppression. He most probably developed the very first death camps because the labor was designed to prosper Egypt while at the same time slowly annihilating the people of God, the Israelites. God sends a savior, small s, Moses, and he delivers the people out of bondage. You've got Joseph. This is where Satan attempts to destroy the people of God through famine and starvation. But God sends a deliverer, Joseph, who feeds the people of God for such a time as this. Then you've got Herod and Titus, the Roman general in AD 70 who sacks Jerusalem, tries to annihilate the people of God. You've got Hitler, Antiochus now, extermination by genocide. The reason this is important is because today, there was an article in Forbes magazine. Now, probably most of you don't read Forbes. It's not a Christian magazine. It's, a, it's basically a money and wealth magazine. There was an article that said, persecuted, persecuted Christians are not given much hope. It goes on to share how 50 countries exist where there is severe persecution of Christians, severe. North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Sudan, Yemen, Iran, India, Syria, China, and 41 other countries. In China this year alone, 5,500 churches have been destroyed. In India this year alone, there have been 1,445 vicious attacks and deaths. Murders of Christ followers, just because they are Christ followers. In Nigeria, 1,350 Christians were murdered just because of their faith. 
A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of sitting down in New Delhi, India with about 25 pastors who had fled persecution from Pakistan and Afghanistan. And I remember two pastors, I had to have a translator, two pastors specifically, a father and a son, they had fled Pakistan where their churches had been burned and their families had been tortured and murdered. The, the government of India allowed them to come in now and live in New Delhi, but they weren't allowed to work. So you can come in and live, but you can't hold a job. And so this father and his son spent their lives finding what they could, bartering, trying to survive day after day, but would spend the primary part of their day on the streets of New Delhi, preaching the good news of the gospel. I remember walking away and remembering that to whom much is given, much is required. And I thought, are we not responsible to our brothers all around the world who are dying and being persecuted because they are Christ's followers? Do we not have some kind of responsibility? Are these not our brothers and sisters? So Antiochus Epiphanes, he comes into power, energized by the power behind the throne, according to Revelation 12, Satan. And he attempts to thwart the plan of God as a Messiah, or for Messiah, rather. Antiochus wants to either apostatize, he wants to call the, cause the Israelites to fall away from their faith, fall away from Yahweh and follow the God Zeus, or the other option is he will simply destroy them. He will annihilate the people of Yahweh. He does a couple of things to discourage them. First, he goes into the Holy of Holies and he sets up an idol in the temple and slaughters a pig in the Holy of Holies. And if you know anything about the Jews, this would be the ultimate offense. He takes the most unclean thing and he takes it into the most impure place, into the most holy setting, and he sacrifices that thing to the false gods. This is called the abomination of desolation. There will be many of these, but this is the first one. And it makes the holy place desolate. Abomination is just a reference to using something impure and tainted as sacred or using something sacred in a profane fashion. This is Antiochus' way of saying to the Israelites, I've no respect for your temple or your God and I will publicly violate both. And I will encourage others to do the same and there's nothing you can do about it. Second, Antiochus abolishes all sacrifices to God and replaces the sacrificial altar with a pagan altar. He basically says to the Israelites, my God or gods are more powerful than your God. My gods or our gods are so much more powerful they will actually uproot your God out of his own temple. Antiochus says, if these Hebrews will not conform, I will desecrate their temple and I will offend their so-called God. I will begin by attacking their religion and then I will attack them. And this is the same pattern that we see prophesied concerning the last days. There's always a cultural attack against the Christians or the Jews. And then if that cultural attack doesn't work, then there's a physical attack where they are annihilated. Antiochus goes so far as to host pagan celebrations in the temple. So he brings the outside, inside, and the sexually impure enter the temple without repentance and sacrifice. And they even commit sexual immorality in the temple area. He prevents the Jews from going into their temple. He says, separates them. He builds a wall between them and their most sacred places. And then he passes an edict, a public edict that says, if you're caught with a scroll, with a Torah, the old law, or if you're participating in any uniquely designed Yahweh rituals, you'll be killed. So that reading the word of God becomes illegal. Praying to Yahweh is illegal. Practicing your faith in the temple is illegal. All in the name of tolerance and galvanizing the culture. How ironic. And finally, Antiochus starts burning the scrolls. 
When that doesn't work, when separating the people of God from the place of God, the temple of God, by casting threats upon their heads, the threat of taking their lives, Finally, he just gathers up all the books, all the scrolls, anything to do with Yahweh and begins burning them. And he forbids the keeping of the Sabbath and teaching the sacred ways of God to their kids. And he forbids the refusal to worship the Greek gods. And if you did any of these things, you were put to death, tortured, imprisoned. Antiochus is a man on a mission. He simply wants to end the practices of the people of God. He knows that they will never conform. He wants to eradicate them, annihilate them. That is his final solution. Now, unfortunately, stay with me. If you're still thinking, okay, how's all? Stay with me. It's tied together. There are many in Israel who go along with Antiochus. They simply say, well, this is the way the world's going, so we better go along with it. We should just adapt and assimilate into the new culture and new world. So they start walking around in the gymnasium without clothes on like the Greeks do. They embrace pagan entertainment and culture and practices that are offensive, especially to the God Yahweh. They say that we will pray and pursue false idols, just like the Greeks. We will worship Zeus and pay homage. The very people of God that claim to be the people of God go along with this kind of hypostasy. We'll go to the same places they go, do the same things they do, be entertained by the same immorality and deny the sacred like everybody else. We will forsake the idea of sex as sacred to the marriage bed, as a wonderful gift of God to those who have committed their lives to one another in the public covenant of marriage. And for all of those who refuse to get in line, Antiochus has a plan. But so does God. He always does. Because there's always a remnant. There's always a small community of believers who refuse to compromise. Even if we're persecuted, even if we're abused and scorned, shamed and canceled, we are going to remain faithful. And they are the ones who receive the crown of life. They're the ones who understand the road is truly narrow and only a few find it. That few have the courage to remain faithful in the midst of cultural, social, and political pressure. But there are always those who will. There are always those who will endure and they will receive the crown of life. Now, from the hills of Judea, there's a family who is fathered by Matthias or Matthew, and he has two sons. He's an upright man, a faithful follower of Yahweh. He knows the plan of God to bring the Messiah. He also trusts that God would never allow the name of Israel to be blotted out because through the line of Israel, the Messiah will come. His sons are watching all of this, pagan worship, pagan sacrifice, pagan practices of sexual immorality in the temple, pagan gods, and the pursuit of assimilation. And they look out and they say, we will never assimilate. We will never violate the name of Yahweh like this. We will never violate what is sacred. We will never allow culture to determine what is sacred and what is profane. We will never allow them to determine what is right and wrong. We believe in the objective source, the objective power, the word of God. And we get our marching orders and the way we live our lives within his parameters. So Matthias and his two sons They raise a resistance and they head for the hills to prepare a defense because they know Antiochus is going to come for them. The name of his sons are Judah or Judah and Johanathan or Jonathan. They are known as the Maccabees. And like the people of Gideon's day, they're not warriors, man. They're shepherds and farmers. They're not sure what they're going to do. They pray, they prepare the best they can. They trust that the battle belongs to the Lord. Otherwise, they have no fighting chance. Then the day comes and Antiochus Epiphanes is angry. 
He sends his army into the camp, the camp of the Hebrews, those who are persevering and remaining faithful to God. And the Greek army climbs the mountain of God with all their weaponry and all their well-trained warriors. They are soundly defeated by the Hebrews. Now, folks, this is not some myth or legend I'm talking about. This is not mythology. This is history recorded for us, respected by most scholars and historians. It's an amazing thing. In fact, some people believe it's even miraculous. How could this army, this Greek well-trained army be defeated by a bunch of Hebrews, by a bunch of farmers? And when the Hebrews defeat the Greek army, they collect their weapons and rations. So in a way, the Greek army fed the Hebrews and equipped them. And this strengthens their resolve to stand their ground. And it's a good thing because Antiochus is angry and he sends a second wave of attacks. This time, Matthias and Matthew. Because when Antiochus sends the second army, they too are also soundly defeated. And Matthias sends a message to the people of God. You better decide now. You're either for us or against us. If you want to maintain your identity as the people of God, you better get on this mountain and trust that God is going to provide and protect you. But you have to decide today. There's no having one foot in Yahweh's world and the other foot in Antiochus's world. You got to make your mind up. You got to decide now. And as a result, even though there's a, a large falling away apostasy of those who turn away from the ways of God and follow the ways of the Greeks, there's also a significant number that go to the mountains and join the ranks. And as a result, their numbers increase. For a lot of those who just fell away, their faith in Yahweh, it was just cultural. It had never become personal. So when you have to pay a price for it, of course, you're going to do what is most easy, what is convenient. And again, it's a good thing that their numbers increase because a third attack comes. And once again, the Greek army is soundly defeated by these pesky Hebrews and their battle cry is constantly, we are outnumbered. We are shepherds and farmers. We don't know how we're going to do this, but with God, all things are possible. And it doesn't matter that we're in the minority. God will give us the victory because when God is on your side, you only need one. And their confidence that God will protect them is directly tied to Messiah, the Messiah that would one day come. And they say, we're going to fast and we're going to pray. And it's a good thing because Antiochus is really angry. And he sends a fourth wave. And this time, the Greek army ascends or descends, depending on how you look at it, upon this mountain-dwelling community of Israelites. And I mean, he opens up the war vault. There are camels and elephants, soldiers and artillery, ancient as it might be. And yes, the Maccabeans defeated the Greek army again. And this time, they pushed the Greek backs and, their, and the horses they rode in on. And they go to their temple. They arrive back at the temple because they've taken it back. And when they arrive, they see how it's been desecrated and defiled. And so they smash the pagan idols that Antiochus had set up. They cleanse the temple, so to speak. They clean house. And then they have a rededication and a recommitment ceremony. And they rededicate the temple to Yahweh, the one true God, and they rededicate themselves back to Yahweh and his way of life. And it's a defining moment in the history of Israel. Well, that is the end of our history lesson for today, but we will come back and finish this message next time on Today with Jeff Vines. 
we'll continue to hear what this significant event is known as today and why it's still important in the Jewish and Christian world. The events that I just described to you celebrates the recommitment and the rededication of the temple, the people of God, where God miraculously spared his people from annihilation. The rededication of the temple, the celebration of a return to the reading of the word of God and to prayer and commitment to resist the world system that is anti-God. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.